Hey, good morning, Collective Church, and happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers in our little community of faith here on the West Side. As you are spread out, some of you with kids on your laps right now. I've been thinking a lot about motherhood in particular over the past few weeks. Even uh, my wife, Erin, we're expecting our second, or our son, any day now. And so I'm actually recording this a little bit early just to make sure that if he shows up early, we're not left. You know, Isaac has got to run and try to put something together at the last minute. I've also been reflecting on it. This past week, I read this book called Domestic Monastery by Ronald Rollheiser, and in it, he lays out some of the fascinating work that God does, not only through mothers and through fathers, but through their fatherhood and through their motherhood. What do I mean by this? When he opened the book, he tells this story where he was giving a lecture and he travels and teaches about uh, spiritual disciplines and practices of how we can grow in our relationship to God. And he was talking about how there's a deep need throughout church history. We see a, a pattern of great spiritual growth coming for those who dedicate themselves to an hour of private prayer every single day, an hour of private prayer. Wow. And so this is, you know, he goes on teaching at this. And at a break, this, this young woman comes up to him and, and she's kind of, you know, anxious and fretful about this. And she kind of comes up and goes, look, where would I ever find an interrupted, an uninterrupted hour each day? She says, I would, I'm afraid, be praying with children screaming and tugging at my pant legs. And all the moms here uh, right now, you know, hearty amen all throughout the West Side just happened. It, it, it is, it's, there's a, a difficulty and a tension that mothers experience between what they want or what their desires are and the needs and wants and desires of their children, a tension that brings out something in them that is, it's a, it's a place of tension. What is Rollheiser's response? Well, you need to figure out how to do it anyway. No, he actually goes on to say, if you are home alone with small children whose needs give you little uninterrupted time, then you don't need an hour of private prayer daily. Raising small children, he says, if done with love and generosity, will do for you exactly what private prayer does. What is this claim that Rollheiser is making? It all revolves around that idea of tension. He goes on on page 49 to say that healthy spirituality has always been a question of putting a number of things into a delicate balance and then walking that tightrope so as not to fall off on either side. Spiritual health may very well be the main task of living in the proper tension of life. You see, mothers, as the master acrobatic tightrope walkers that they are managing, most estimates are somewhere between two and a half to three full-time jobs, and that's just for our stay-at-home moms. That does not take in uh, those that are also uh, working or those who are single mothers. You add on to that in this sheltering at home moment that our mothers are also teachers and childcare and quarantine enforcement, disinfectant squads. Mothers are always caught up in the tension. And mothers, in Rollheiser's opinion, have a leg up on many of us because they are forced into the tension between their desires and the desires of those around them, between their desires and needs and wants and the the selfishness that gets brought out. Mothers see their selfishness. They see their limitations. They see what they can and can't do and what's going on, and they see it so much easier than many of us do. You see, Mothers don't need an hour in private prayer because what most of us need in that hour of private prayer is what mothers live in as their experience. 
And so all of this is to say that mothers, you have a leg up on us, but we're inviting you to join the rest of us as we look for the next few weeks back into the gospel of Mark, reflecting on exactly what we just talked about, entering the tension, the tension of discipleship and following Jesus, of being pulled this way and that. We are in a moment where we're not strangers to tension. You know, this COVID-19 moment is one where on one hand, I mean, the, the phrase work at home or working from home is a sentence of tension in and of itself. And so we have this weird tension of we're working from home, but we're also, it feels like we're kind of having a vacation. We're trying to work, but we're also trying to figure out how to rest and have a vacation. We understand there's a pandemic going on and there's people being, they're sick and even there's death that's happening. And yet we feel there's more rest that we have or opportunity for it than ever before. We have death and life all side by side. As we look through Mark's gospel, we find a similar tension that is happening within the life of Jesus and that he invites his disciples into. See, over the next few chapters, the next few weeks, we're going to find Jesus constantly butting heads, entering into tension with this group called the scribes and the Pharisees. And even more than that, as Mark puts together the story of Jesus's life, these next couple of chapters, we're going to be looking at how he pairs certain moments and segments that maybe we would see as separate actually next to each other to highlight the tightrope that Jesus invites us to walk on between one thing and the other, whether that's between uh, feasting and fasting or resting and working or sowing and reaping or enemies and family. There's a tightrope, the discipleship to Jesus that, you you know, spiritual health, to use Rollheiser's language, uh, requires us to walk on. And we're going to let Jesus teach us how to do that. Now, part of this is also going to be, uh, you won't see my face for the next few weeks. Uh, like I just mentioned, Aaron is expecting our second. And so I've been so uh, gracious from Collective and from the other pastors to allow to have some space just to care for Aaron and Emma and our newborn, specifically because we don't have family here in LA. And even if we did, everything's been so quarantined and locked down that uh, I'll be able to be there just to kind of help care for Aaron and Emma and our little guy. And so I just, before even saying anything else, I'm just grateful for those of you that are continuing to be generous to our church and even your understanding uh, in allowing us this space right now. I, I, yeah, it's just, it's a, a, yeah, without getting too emotional, I'm just grateful for y'all's continued uh, generosity and understanding. But that doesn't mean uh, you guys are just going to be watching YouTube videos or anything like that for the next few weeks. Uh, We have pulled together a team of guest preachers, uh, one of them actually not being a guest, but Pastor Isaac, who's going to be here next week. And then over the following weeks, a bunch of guest preachers that are all not only some of my favorite people, like the closest pastor friends, but also incredible teachers. And so we're going to be hearing from a handful of them as we go through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to take a break in Mark to actually hear from one of those guys, uh, Jay Kim, who's going to be teaching on entering the tension between digital and analog. So you can just see all of this is we're going to spend a few weeks in the midst of this tension moment thinking about how is discipleship a call to enter into the tension. And then I'll be back to close out the series when we look at the tension between faith and fear. So tension, Mother's Day, you guys have a leg up on it. You, you ladies have a leg up on many of us in understanding what it means to live like this. 
But for the rest of us, and we're inviting you to join us, we're going to see how Jesus brings us along in understanding that. Today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And today is all about food. I selfishly made sure that I had this passage because I'm, I'm, I'm a foodie at heart. I, cooking is one of my hobbies. And so any chance to talk about how Jesus loves food, of course, I'm going to take it. So let's read Mark chapter 2, 13 through 22. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get right into it. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, says, He, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, no, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth or a new cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new patch will tear away from it, the new from the old, and the worse a tear is made. And no one puts new wine into an old wine skin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to enter the tension today, to see who Jesus is, to reflect on the questions that he faces, and what these mean about him, and what they mean about us. And we pray. Amen. So the first question I want to consider in this story is simply this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? When you think about that question and maybe bring an image to mind, the odds are being shaped by the world is it looks something like what Google search image does. Jesus looks stern. He looks, he's got a poker face on. You can't really read his emotion. Maybe he's got a small smirk. And Jesus is white, which we've talked about in the past, and we probably will talk about at some other time. But the big thing worth noting is Jesus doesn't look like much fun. What we find in Mark chapter 2 and what we just read is that Jesus loves to party. Jesus is a A man, he's a rabbi who loves to go to parties. He's eating and reclining. It's a word for feasting and eating and drinking. He's laughing. He's joking. He's celebrating. If you're reading into it, it's a party with tax collectors and sinners. It is not a tame, quiet, boring conversation where they're all parsing Greek and Hebrew together. This is jokes are being told. Wine is being passed. The dinner is being served. And it is a good time. And Jesus is here right in the middle of it. And this is not just within Mark 2, but all throughout the Gospels. If you follow Jesus, he's always going to, coming from, or presently at a meal. Jesus loves to eat and drink. In fact, it's how Jesus describes his mission. Throughout the Gospels, there's these three little son of man came to statements that Jesus makes, each one giving some picture of his mission and vision and what he's come to do. And one of them in Luke chapter 7 is 
Uh, one of the three is that Jesus says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. Jesus loves to feast. He loves to party. And that is so unlike our assumptions because we think of a stern, emotional, we've talked about in the past, robo Jesus, who kind of just moves through and you know gives out little smart religious aphorisms, but he isn't necessarily the first guy you'd invite to a party. But here we find Jesus invited central to this big feast. And that's what goes even further beyond our assumption is not only who Jesus is, but who Jesus invites to dinner. Who does he hang out with? Who does he call to his disciples? It's not the Bible nerds. It's not the who's who of Capernaum. It's not the equally white, stern, poker-faced, you know, religious crowd. It's tax collectors, which would be seen as these these, uh, traitors to Israel. It's sinners. It's everybody who's failed to live up to the markers of ethical, moral, and spiritual accomplishment. Those seemingly stuck in the cul-de-sac of poor decision-making and exiled from society for it. When we hear the name Jesus, we have a whole host of different ideas uh, that swirl in our minds. Because of nights like here in Mark 2 and for the rest of his life, when the people of Jesus' day heard his name, three titles came to mind. Luke chapter 7 shows us, Friend of Sinners drunkard, and glutton. Now, these nicknames would not have been pinned on Jesus if it were not for how he spent his time and whose house he went to. Now, because of what we see throughout the Gospels and we know of Jesus, he, we know he's not a, a wine-biting drunk or an overeating glutton, but one thing is for certain. Jesus was and is a friend of sinners. He invites parties with, loves, has fun with, is enjoyed by, and genuinely enjoys being with those who simply can't seem to get their act together. This is a Jesus that's so unlike our conceptions as we see in this story. And we find that we're not alone in our confusion when we look at these two groups of people that show up for the first time and will become major players throughout the rest of Mark's gospel. And it is the scribes or the Bible nerds and the Pharisees, literally the set apart ones. These are these uh, this this crowd of scribes and Pharisees are these individuals that are longing for the kingdom of God to arrive, longing for Israel to be freed from the oppression of Rome to establish Israel as this global superpower, the resurrection of the righteous, and they believe that all of this would come when Israel got its proverbial act together. And so these Pharisees were the the moral exemplars of the day. They led the way. They were the hope of Israel. But they were likely not the first people you'd invite to your dinner party, which was true in the passage that we just read. It's not explicit, but it's seen in the text that it doesn't seem like the Pharisees or the scribes were invited to this dinner party. But like police crashing a party with a loud noise complaint, they show up and begin to poke and prod and ask questions. You're going to find the Pharisees and the scribes throughout the rest of Mark's gospel as kind of being this religious highway patrol, hidden away in the bushes with, you know, religious radar guns pointed on Jesus, ready to come down on him with lights and sirens so they can pull him over and ask some question. You know how fast you were going? Or in this case, two questions. Why are you feasting with them? And why are you not fasting? Why do you feast with them and why are you not fasting? See, the two questions revolve around feasting and fasting. The reality is that feasting and fasting were both integral practices within the life of 
Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, the Pharisees as a Jewish sect for most of the people of Jesus's day. And we get feasting, feasting as the natural inevitable response to the gracious and sacred moments of life. It is a practice of celebration. Today on Mother's Day, if the baby's not here, we're making tacos and french fries in Chipotle Ranch. And what we do is the steak tacos on the tiny little tortillas. You put french fries with cilantro and onion. I'm getting hungry now. And cilantro and then the um, Chipotle Ranch. And then you eat those all together. And it's the best thing in the world. We are going to feast to celebrate mom. We have Thanksgiving a couple weeks back before literally the weekend before all of this happened. Aaron and I were able to get away to a baby moon kind of thing up in Topanga and Malibu area. And so one night we'd saved up and we went to dinner at Nobu for like sushi. And we feasted, we celebrated. We've got another baby on the way. We, we've we settled into our life in Los Angeles before this pandemic turned it all over, but we celebrate around the table. This makes total sense to us. But for Israel, I mean, they make us look tame. Part of the 613 commanded, uh, the law of God given to Israel, many of them were commands to feast. I mean, think about this. What a great God who tells you on a regular basis, I want you to throw a party on a weekly basis to kick off Sabbath with a big meal. And then throughout the year to have these seven giant national feasts where everybody has a big giant party. A few weeks ago, we were able to over Zoom join in on uh, Isaac and Pastor Isaac and Shana, their little family Passover meal over Zoom. And so, you know, we were reading the Bible, retelling the Exodus story, their songs and activities. They had a big meal and we, we, had made a big meal and we had already meal planned. And so we were having like an udon noodle pork dish. And so that was like the most Gentile like I ever felt was having a Passover meal and I'm eating uh, pork noodles. It was awesome. And then part of this feast was an ordered part of the liturgy of the Passover meals, four glasses of wine. I mean, goodness me, the Israelite feasts were this captivating moment of joy and celebration. It was an embodiment of family and community. It was a spiritual and national identity all wrapped up together. And these feasts captured the Jewish imagination. The prophets wrote of the awaited arrival of God's kingdom, what the Pharisees were waiting for as a feast. Isaiah 25 shows it explicitly, where the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples this feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, of fatty meat, of well-refined wine, and that God himself in that day will not only feed his people, but that he will swallow up, he will feast on death itself. The Lord will wipe away all of the tears from the people and the sins he will take away. Like this is the whole understanding of what the hope of Israel was, was used in this feast language. Each feast for Israel was looking back to what God had done and looking forward to what he would do in the future. And so the Pharisees' problem is not that Jesus is fasting. but All of this comes together is who he's fasting or excuse me, who he's feasting with. He's feasting with tax collectors and sinners. Which based on the Pharisees' understanding of Israel needing to get its act together to religiously step up as, as Jesus is welcoming those who, who are costing us this kingdom. And so why are you, the question is, Jesus, don't you, this is, the time is not for accepting these guys. You need to, these tax collectors and sinners, you need to have a stern talking to with them. You need to ostracize them until they get their act together. This is the first citation that the religious police here give Jesus. The second is around fasting. Fasting is almost the opposite of feasting. You think of feasting as a practice of celebration. Fasting is the practice of mourning, of not feasting on food, but abstaining from food, sometimes even water. 
It's a natural, inevitable response to the grievous sacred moments of life. As you read through the Old Testament, what you'll find is that Israel's fasts were coming up spontaneously in certain moments, unmet desires like Hannah in the midst of her infertility, in national disasters, in other people's sin, other people's sickness, grieving over something that had happened, uncertainty in decisions. When God seemed absent, we find people spontaneously fasting. They abstain from food as a way of praying with their bodies that they are hungry for God to show up. The one scheduled fast for Israel was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the whole nation would fast for a day as they repented and confessed their sins to God. You see, whereas feasting was commonly being called to Israel, fasting was only one day a year. But the Pharisees added these weekly fasts, Tuesdays to Thursdays, and I'm not saying this inherently wrong, but they were doing this specifically in response to the unmet desire for the kingdom feast that they were waiting for. This is likely the fast that the Pharisees of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are observing here, the fast that Jesus isn't participating in. And so the Pharisees' problem is not just who Jesus is feasting with, but that he's not fasting. It's the question of, Rabbi, don't you mourn for the kingdom? Aren't you waiting for this feast to come? Are you content with what's going on in the world? See, Jesus doesn't fit the scribes and the Pharisees' salvation story of how this works and where this is going. He doesn't fit into ours as well. But what is Jesus' response? What is his, his feasting with these people, his absence of fasting? What's his response to the citation? What's his defense? Jesus gives us four little clues through what you could call these little mini parables, these little tiny illustrated statements that simultaneously reveal and conceal what he's up to in this moment. He refers to himself as being a physician, to being a bridegroom, to being like new cloth, and to being like new wine. On one hand, it's an imaginative metaphor. On another, it is steeped in meaning and purpose. And, and all of this comes as we remember back in Mark chapter one, verse 12, where, or verse two, excuse me, where Mark says, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, and then he kicks off the gospel of Mark. You see, Mark was giving us a key to understanding some of the confusion and questions we may have. What does it mean that Jesus is a physician or bridegroom or wine or cloth? He says, Isaiah is the hint. Go back and read Isaiah and you'll find it. And when you do, all of Jesus' little mini statements here click together. See, Isaiah prophesied about this coming Messiah, this anointed king who would come like a physician to heal God's people. Isaiah used this bridegroom language only to talk about God coming back as a groom to marry his people. Isaiah lamented that all of humanity had become not like a new garment or new cloth, but like an old, dirty, stained garment. And Isaiah, like we saw earlier, talked about God's kingdom as a feast with an open bar with this free new wine. What Jesus is saying in making all of these claims is Jesus is saying is, I am the Messiah physician. I am God who has come back to marry my people. I am unlike humanity that has been tainted and unclean and broken by sin. I am this new cloth. I am fully human. And like we saw in the wine that we were talking about in this big feast, Jesus is saying, not only have I come to kick off that feast, I am the substance of it itself. 
I am the wine that you drink. The seed that is planted here blooms in the Last Supper on the night of his death when Jesus takes that wine and he says, you know, drink of this. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of many. And again, this is all coming back to Isaiah. Jesus is connecting all of Israel's expectations from the prophet Isaiah into himself here. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am God come to marry my people. I am the new cloth. I am fully human. And I am this new wine that is the the thing that you've been craving and longing for. You see, all of these come together to both conceal before the Pharisees and the scribes, but also reveal in a full understanding who Jesus is. Jesus is in effect saying to them, why do my fasting with sin? Why am I feasting with sinners? Sorry. Why am I feasting with sinners? Jesus says, because that's precisely who the feast is for. Have you guys read Isaiah? Go back. Do you not see that the feast is for the broken and the sinners and the hungry and the poor? It is not for those who have it all together. And he also says, why am I not fasting and lament for the arrival of that kingdom feast? Because it's here. The thing you've been waiting for is here and it's me. So why would I be fasting for the kingdom when the kingdom is here? Why would I not be feasting with the groom? Because if if the groom is here, he uses that parable. I mean, Jesus not feasting is as strange as, you know, when the quarantine is lifted and we can go back out to our days is, you know, somebody asks if you want to do dinner sometime and, you know, you send them a Zoom link. You just know why, because it's not the time for anymore. Yeah, Zoom and online services. When, when this all ends and we can begin to gather again today, those of you that, you know, if somebody emailed me or texted me or asked me, you know, I really miss the online service. I want to go back to the online thing. I would laugh at them <laughs> like Jesus here. Well, why? Because that's, that worked for then, but we're not in that time anymore. It's the time for feasting. It's the time for going out and eating with friends. It's the time for us gathering together again because we are no longer in the waiting time. And so Jesus is calling this out. That was for another time and another moment. Fasting, it's not the time for that. And feasting is specifically for those who are far from God because that's what the feast is all about. But the question is, if this is who Jesus is, the physician, the bridegroom, the new cloth, the new wine, what does it mean about us? Those four mini parables give us the hard truth of who we are. Because if Jesus is the physician, what he says is that means that we are sick sinners. If Jesus is the bridegroom who's come, we are the expectant bridal party, or you could say the bride herself. If Jesus is the new garment, then we are old garments. Like Isaiah said, if Jesus is the new wine, then we are the old wineskins. We are the sick sinners. We're sick with sin, that we fail to miss the goal of loving God and loving others on a weekly basis. Being locked up with your roommates or your children or even by yourself is bringing this out of you. We are sick with sin. Like a bridal party or a bride without a groom, that is no party at all. There's, we're standing at the altar alone and isolated and waiting for the one which our heart longs for. We are like the old garment Isaiah said, unclean, polluted, and even our attempts at good are soiled with ulterior and even self-serving motives. And even those purely good moments are so few and far between, they don't outweigh our brokenness. We are incapable of cleansing ourselves. And we are like old wineskins. We've been stretched to our limit through our lives. And we now are incapable of receiving this new thing that Jesus is bringing. See, this is a hard and humbling word to hear. For us to name and receive as true. 
And it was hard for us. It was hard for the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus didn't fit with their salvation story. He doesn't fit with ours either. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus was at another feast, this time with a bunch of Pharisees. I don't know why they invited him and thought that it was going to go well. But at one point, one of the Pharisees is kind of looking around at this big table with all these other Pharisees and religious leaders. And he kind of raises up his wine glass and he goes, now this is what the kingdom feast is going to be like. And Jesus just absolutely shuts him down and reveals his assumptions. Jesus, through this parable that he tells right there at the dinner table, says that the kingdom feast that it is not for the religious men who have it all together and who, who, because of their privilege, have had a life of simplicity. And maybe they're able to be a little bit more moral because of the way that they've been conditioned and who they've been raised by. This is just, Jesus says, you know, yeah, the feast is for them, but it's not earned by them. It's not achieved by them. Jesus goes on in his story to say that the feast is most readily available to the poor to the sick, to the vulnerable, to the sinners. Why? Because with each of those groups of people, there's no pretense or pretending that they're perfect. There's no illusions of the salvation of the world resting on them getting themselves together. That if there's going to be a feast, it's going to have to be something that I receive freely. Jesus's words in this story, the reality of our situation is that we need to be healed of our sin sickness. We need to be married. We need to be made new so that we might receive the kingdom work that Jesus is doing in a way that we could not as we presently are. It requires humility to be humble, as again, Isaiah told us, but this is the one to whom God will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. The hope of God's saving attention falls on those who are humble and contrite. And the humble and the broken, the contrite, are most often the poor, the sick, the vulnerable, those who by society have been named as sinners. And for you and me, regardless of what your life has brought you to, maybe you are well aware of you're a sinner, or maybe you actually think that Jesus is just a helping hand to get you over the finish line in your own righteousness. For you and me, if we, we have to acknowledge our status to look to God as the sole source of our hope, to see in him that only then can there be all things being made new, as Jesus said and Isaiah awaited. You see, this is why Jesus came to call sinners and not the righteous. This is not that Jesus saying the righteous don't need Jesus, but those who think that they are righteous will never hear his call. Until we give up on our salvation story, that we are righteous, we are like an old garment. We are like an old wineskin incapable of receiving or having anything patched onto us. Until we give up those things, we are humbled by our way of life and our need to be made new from something outside of ourselves. You see, the feast will never be available to us. It's only then that we can hear Jesus calling us as sinners And that calling is inferred in Mark's gospel, but explicit in Luke's retelling of this story when he says that Jesus has come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners specifically to repentance. And repentance gets a bad rap in our day. People write it on poster boards and hold it up and walk around in circles and try to do whatever. The the simplicity is, is that repentance at its core thing is just two simple things. It comes out of this word, to repent is just to return or to turn around. It's just two things, naming that the pattern of decisions that I've been involved in. This is for the tax collector, Levi, to see, for the 
Peter as a fisherman, for, for all of us sinners that we are, just to name that the decisions that I've been making in my life, if I continue in those, they're going to continue to hurt me and hurt those around me. Just to own up to the moral failures that I've made in my life. It's not hating yourself or berating yourself. It's just simply owning up to the destruction that my little way of life is bringing on myself and on my body and on my life and on my loved ones and on my neighbors and on the world and on those that I ignore. To name that pattern of decisions and then to turn around. To let the person of Jesus, his hospitality, his opening up the table for you to become the place where he can open up a whole new horizon for your life. To follow Jesus as his disciple and allow that new direction of your life to become the way of your life, as we saw a few weeks ago in Bartimaeus. You see, this is the simple reality of all of this feasting that Jesus is doing is you could say that his physician's table, his operating table is the dining room table. It is as we feast with Jesus and we spend time in his presence and we look and get to know him better that we find a whole new way of life being opened up to us if we simply turn from the ones that we're committed to right now. It's what happens with Levi. It's what happens with countless other sinners over his his ministry and what's happened throughout church history is people who quit pretending they're righteous and begin to acknowledge the ways that their either religion or their chasing after whatever they want has been leading to destruction and to allow Jesus to offer a new way. And all of this new way is one that we have to walk in tension. What do I mean by this? The first thing this story means is on one hand, the tightrope, the two sides that we walk. On one hand is that the disciples of Jesus are a feasting people. That this practice of celebration is something that continues within us today, that like Israel, each time we feast, we look forward and backward, back to the new reality that is opened up through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That though we are sinners, we are being made new, and though we were sinners, we are being made new. That we look backward and we look forward to that final awaited feast when death will be swallowed up in victory by God himself. We are a feasting people because we follow the example of Jesus in inviting and dining with those who are far from God, or at least feel that they are. And so for us at Collective, I mean, we do this each week in communion, this little feast. In our neighborhood dinners, when we gather together, something we're still trying to prioritize, even in this digital moment, of doing our best to feast with one another, to prime our anticipation and expectation, not only for when we can feast together as collective, but to feast with Jesus in that final feast that his kingdom brings. We even, I remember, had this shortly after we got here, our birthday celebration, where we had a big old taco feast because we were celebrating all that God had done as we looked forward to what God was going to do in the future. So I would encourage you in this moment to remember to walk into this side that we are a feasting people, to find ways to lean into a rhythm of regularly feasting, even weekly feasting, I would argue alongside a day of Sabbath rest, something that Isaac's going to lead us in next week, but to feast on a weekly basis, to remember what God has done and where things are going, and to eat some really good food and to celebrate around a table. But this series is not just called Entering the Feast, but Entering the Tension. And that tension comes in verse 20, something that we read over, but actually has huge implications for us. Where Jesus says, why does he, he says, I mean, this is not the time for fasting because I'm here. But then in verse 20, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, from the disciples. And they will fast in that day. 
On one hand, Jesus is talking about when he goes to his cross. That will be a day of mourning. But even more than that, he's talking about us right now. That the bridegroom is not presently physically with us. We are not feasting with Jesus. And so on one hand, we're feasting in anticipation and we're also fasting. We are also a fasting people. This practice of mourning over the reality that the physician is still at work in healing us and this world, healing us from our sin sickness, that we are painfully awaiting, though we are engaged to Jesus, our groom, we are waiting for him to walk down the aisle, that he has not yet arrived, that the garments and wineskins that have been stretched and soiled, that those are being washed and renewed and being made new, but that work is not done yet. And fasting here is not simply to be a metaphor for us, but an actual physical implication and practice for Christians. As we acknowledge the moment that we're in, though Jesus speaks against the fasting of the Pharisees and and John the Baptist's disciples here, he does not discount the practice. In fact, he teaches on it as a central practice for disciples in his Sermon on the Mount. See, I would encourage you to lean into the practice of fasting as a natural practice in the midst of not only this COVID-19 moment that we're going through, but on a weekly basis as we deeply long for Jesus's healing return as a way of mourning over sin, of unmet desires, of national disasters, other people's sins against us or other people's sickness. We can fast for healing. Maybe it's just something as simple as as what has been the common practice throughout church history is um, fasting just one or two meals a week. Normally lunch on Tuesdays and Thursdays was for the early church, their pattern. And just taking that time to allow that hunger to set our hearts on a hunger for Jesus's feast that he will bring in his kingdom. And so there's more that can be said practically on this. But I want to encourage you to talk about this in your discipleship group. We are learning to walk a tightrope between celebration and mourning, between Jesus's resurrection and his return in the space of the already and the not yet of feasting and fasting. That for me, I I can't, I, I guess I can speak for Aaron, but part of being a parent is that we are always in this weird space of mourning and celebration. That each hallmark in each moment that I have with my daughter or that Aaron has with our daughter or we will have with our son, that we celebrate over those and yet we mourn because we are she's aging, you know, she's moving towards the, the, I only have so many more uh, days as of right now where it's just the three of us. I've had only so many more days where we have Emma as a toddler. You know, we have kids in our house. You just, you just go through that. That every single day is a weird tension of celebration and some loss if we're really slowing down and aware to it. And the reality is for us as Christians, that tension that all parents are going through is a tension that prayer and our life is meant to bring out of us, where we acknowledge that we are in the space between mourning and celebration. Celebration because of the fact of what God has done and what he's going to do, but mourning because we're in that in-between space. And what I want you to spend time on in discipleship group is what happens when we fall to one side or the other? What sort of disciple and person does it make if we go all feasting or all fasting? What are you more prone to fall into? And what does it look like to enter into that tension together?